0: microphone check one two CC hello and welcome XCC hello and welcome at one two three four five six she sells seashells by the seashore she sells seashells by the seashore there we go rolling
1: I love your concept of the documentary life because if you're gonna do this even if you're working a day job this is something that you can't give up on you have to hold on to this. Of course, you want to surround yourself, hopefully, with people who can help you bring your vision to life. But really, all it takes is that spark of passion and um, a story that you're just dying to tell.
0: Hello and welcome to the Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 78. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the documentarylife.com/academy When I was designing and producing our DVD packages for Journey to Kathmandu, one of the things that I knew I’d had in abundance of and that might be attractive to purchasers of a DVD set, was a slew of film extras. In part because I'd been blogging much of the filmmaking process, and in part because I had a lot of behind-the-scenes type material, I figured I could make the package something that doc film enthusiasts and doc filmmakers alike would be pretty interested in. The amazing DVDs that Criterion has been putting out for years was an inspiration for sure. I'd been appreciating the Criterion Collection DVDs for some of my favorite films for a long time. The amount of extras was often worth the price of the film alone. I knew I'd had plenty of extras to work with, not to mention a brilliant soundtrack. So a CD of the soundtrack actually came as part of the whole package. And so I knew I was going to make a pretty beefy and attractive DVD slash CD soundtrack package for Journey to Kathmandu. In fact, I'll try and remember to post some images of the package up in the show notes so you can take a look at yourself. It's it's brilliant, seriously. You should definitely check it out. Not because I'm hopeful you'll purchase, which, you know, by all means, feel free to do, but more because I want you to see the eco-friendly packaging and the brilliant artwork that was done not only for the DVD sleeve, but on the DVD and CD as well. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I talked about why doing EPK or electronic press kits, or we can call them BTS or behind the scenes, why it's it's tailor made for us doc filmmakers. We have the gear and we know how to tell stories. EPK and BTS type of work, they go hand in hand with the doc filmmaker. And the people that produce them professionally have helped make some incredible DVD packages over the years. Not the least, of course, which are the aforementioned Criterion folks. Now, EPK as as a vocation, if you will, it's, it's kind of diminished considerably over the years. The major studios have decided that it wasn't making financial sense to continue putting money into building out and producing extras for DVDs. I suppose the thinking is that because of digital platforms, people aren't as interested in extras or making ofs or, or behind the scenes. I actually think this is a bit narrow-sighted, but whatever, that's that's my opinion. I'm not a studio exec, right? But I will say that this, in my humble opinion, it creates an opportunity for you, the independent doc filmmaker, just as I did with Journey to Kathmandu and and the DVD package, I believe that we can all be taking advantage of this lack of EPK or BTS material to better produce our own sellable packages. And that most certainly includes digital distribution as well. So in our opening segment, I'm going to talk about this by giving you five best practices for making film extras. And after that, we're going to hold court, if you will, with someone who did so much EPK work in the 90s and the early aughts that in Hollywood studio circles, he became known as the EPK Samurai. Sweet name, right? And he's turned that EPK business now into a full-fledged documentary production business. He has over 300 producer credits and over 100 director's credits to his name, which is Jeffrey Schwartz, by the way. And we'll be talking with him later on in the program. So after we take a quick break, we'll get into our five best practices for making film extras. Thanks for joining me today on The Documentary Life. So the first best practice that I'm going to mention for producing DVD extras is to get the best possible audio that you can. That's not going to surprise you hearing me preach audio. I often do on this program, and with good reason. It's easy to get caught up in the sometimes run-and-gun aspects of shooting EPK. If you're doing this for hire, you're probably often going all around the set picking up shots or perhaps wrangling talent to speak with. But we're really talking about doing this for your own films. My point is that audio can sometimes take a back seat to what you may be shooting for your extras for your film. But don't make that mistake, because oftentimes you're not just shooting images that you'll put together as a montage, say, you know, over some music. In fact, often the sound bites, they're often what really resonate with people. When I was shooting some making of stuff for the soundtrack for Journey to Kathmandu, I knew that the sound of the music making was going to be important, but I also recognized that I wanted to get a bit under the hood, if you will, with some of the musicians doing the making. So I made sure that I had a good shotgun mic that was operating, and I also made sure to put a lav on each musician that I wanted to highlight through the shooting. And believe me, I was very happy that I did get good clean audio, not only because I was able to pick up you know, some of the beautiful sounds of the music that they were creating, but because I'd lav the musicians as well, I got some really cool moments of their creative process. In fact, I'll go ahead and post this video short in the show notes as well um, if, I, if I remember so you can get some idea of what, I, what I'm talking about here. Number two, involve the crew and subjects. Because most of us now have very good cameras built into our mobile devices, I'd encourage anyone working on your film to be taking photos and video of the various events. You never really know how you might use these later on, whether it be for key art for your film, social media purposes, or like I said, the film extras. But what's important is that you not only encourage people to shoot this kind of stuff, but also that you make sure that you get access to the photos or footage as soon as possible. Thing is, it's really easy to forget about it or assume that you can get these later on, but it's easier to ask people when it's fresh on their mind than it is say, you know, a year or two down the road when you're putting together the DVD or, or, or social media releases. Oh, and one thing I'll also uh, mention, speaking of releases, make sure to get a signed release for all of these footages. That's going to be important as well. So make sure your, your, your cast and crew or, or whoever you're working with, um, you know, sort of officially allows you to use the, the, the video footage. Number three is keep a film journal. Whenever I'm working on a particular project, I'm often keeping a written journal of events. It's kind of a way for me to decompress, say, after a day of shooting, and it allows me to get out some ideas or thoughts that I might want to remember for later on. My film journals allow me to process what's happening on my film while it's actually happening, or, say, while I'm filming. Many of my blog posts often are born out of the journal entries, or at least an idea that was spawned from this the stream of consciousness thinking and writing that I had been doing. And a number of my extras, the film DVD extras, they come from things that I've written down in my film journals. Another thing you you might consider along those lines is actually a video journal, or I suppose even vlogging for that matter, if you don't wanna write down your thoughts. Certainly, the video can be used in many ways for film extras later on down the line. And if you are doing any vlogging around your project, that can be getting people super excited for your film and helping you build an audience well before the film is released. And we all know the importance of that one. Number four, storytelling. It's easy to get in the mindset that if you're shooting BTS behind the scenes, you're just getting B-roll type stuff. But that is by no means always the case, nor should it be. You might be covering things like crew meetings, fundraising parties, or the recording of music for your film, like I mentioned I was doing earlier on. There are many opportunities for shooting behind-the-scenes type stuff that isn't of your actual film shoot. So it's important to remember when shooting this type of stuff that you're a storyteller. You still want to be in the mindset of a storyteller. Again, it's hard to say until later on how your extras might be used. So it's a good idea to get in the habit of always thinking story, 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 just as you would when shooting your actual doc. The last thing that I want to mention deals with the offloading of your BTS or EPK footage, which you're going to want to do at the end of the day, just as you would all of your footage from the actual shoot that day. Now, This really is about any BTS footage that might be shot on a mobile device, since anything shot on the main shoot's camera will obviously be transferred with all of the other footage. There are two reasons that you want to make sure and offload footage from your phone or or of course any other camera that's that's there that day and make sure to to offload that footage at the end of the day one when you go to look for extras footage it's much easier to find it by day of the shoot since you know what folder of what drive it'll be on if you're not regularly offloading your bts you risk it sitting on your phone or or other other camera for who knows how long and, and, and then when you finally do dump it, you're going to have it mixed in. In the case of using a phone, you'll have it mixed in with anything else that's ever been shot on your phone since the last time you dumped photos and videos. Having to go through that mess every time you want to find some specific BTS is an incredible waste of time. So yeah, just as you would with your daily footage, make sure to offload all of your BTS stuff as well. It'll make life a lot easier for you, trust me. Okay, so those are five best practices for making film extras. Be thinking of some of these things as you make your documentary. Remember, you are an independent filmmaker, and because of this, you're going to be responsible for selling yourself and your film. So be thinking of ways to be procuring extras as you're making your film. I'd actually, there's something else I want to mention. I didn't include this as one of the five, and, and maybe I should have, but I'll briefly say that when you're in post, be pulling aside any clips that you don't use for your film that you might think you could use later on, you know, some good behind the scenes or film extras stuff that, that might be helpful later on. If there's any question, just plop it into a sequence and be done with it. You can always go back to it later. It's it's much easier than, than having to sort of go through footage and, and try to look for that stuff again. That way, you can always come back to it later on when you start putting together extra for the film, or find yourself in need of some video for social media purposes. And as always, if you'd like to see these written out, I'll post these five best practices to the show notes for this episode. Simply go to the podcast website at thedocumentarylife.com. All right, stay with us as we bring on Doc Filmmaker and ex-EPK Samurai Jeffrey Schwartz. He'll have a lot to say on the subject of producing film extras, as well as how to make a living as a Doc Filmmaker, which he has now been doing for years. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is all coming up next on The Documentary Life. Hey Doc Lifers, I've mentioned a few times in the past that we've been putting together a TDL workshop and setting up some meetups. We want to be out there and connecting with members of the TDL faithful and be engaging with other Doc filmmakers. And this weekend of June 16th and 17th, we're going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. So any Doc Lifers in the area, we'd love to meet up with you. On Saturday, June 16th, we're giving a doc film workshop for Julie McElmurray's Charlotte Film School, and it will take place from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then on Sunday, June 17th, both Steph and I will be at the Pizza and Peel from 4 to 7 p.m., and we'll be hosting a meetup for any and all doc lifers in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, or of course, any doc lifers who might want to make the travel to meet up and talk shop with some fellow doc lifers. It'll be great to see you at one or both of these workshop or meetups. For more information, just visit our events page at thedocumentaryacademy.com slash joinus. I'll also, of course, post a link in the show notes for this episode. We've had correspondence over the past year or two with a number of you Doc Lifers in North Carolina, so we'd love to see and meet you in person. Actually, now that I do say that, uh, yesterday I saw that Julie McElmurray, who's putting on the Saturday workshop, she's offering Doc Lifers, listeners to this show, she's offering you a massive discount. I believe normally for Saturday's workshop, it's $90 or $95 or something like that. She's actually going to offer it to you for $15, so I would definitely take advantage of that again go to the documentaryacademy.com join us for more information and stay tuned here on the documentary life for more upcoming workshops and meetups coming to your area and yes I'm looking at you Philly Doc Lifers because we'll be there in July again go to the documentaryacademy.com join us. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is for the most part is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film, but how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market, or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, The Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at the documentarylife.com/academy. We'll see you there. I am happy to welcome onto the program today Jeffrey Schwartz. Jeffrey is an Emmy award-winning producer and director who's based out of Los Angeles. He has a number of documentary films under his belt. The most recent, The Fabulous Alan Carr, has actually at the time of this recording has just been released on all of the major digital platforms including iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, and Google Play. Excited to have Jeffrey on the program today. We will also be talking not only about his documentary experience, but also of his EPK or electronic press kit experience, which he did for a number of years in Hollywood. And in fact, started to become known as the EPK Samurai. So I cannot wait to get into that and hear some amazing stories. Jeffrey, welcome to the documentary life.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank you for doing what you're doing. I'm a big fan of your show,
0: and I, I really appreciate those kind words. You and I have been kind of exchanging emails here for the, at least the the past few months, so it's nice to it's nice to finally get you here on the show. And uh, I'm excited to to talk to you about your doc work and certainly what sure. you did with with EPK. Um, this is going to be great. So I I guess what what, would be a nice way to start, Jeffrey, as we often do on the show, is let's get a little bit about your film background. And I imagine that that will lead us to what you were doing with in the EPK industry and, and electronic press kits.
1: Sure. I went to film school and I went to the State University of New York at Purchase in New York, which had a great program, still does.
0: You went to SUNY Purchase? Yeah, I did. Oh, that's fantastic! I went to SUNY Fredonia. I had no idea you were a fellow SUNY alum. That's that's excellent. Oh, <laughs> we're getting off go. to a great start already.
1: <laughs> we're connected. I didn't know you went there. Oh, that's great. SUNY Purchase had a fa- fabulous uh, film program. Yeah. Um, went in there in '87. Yeah. Uh, and I went in there thinking that I was going to write and direct narrative films. And I know I always loved movies and. Yeah. And didn't really think much about documentary. It wasn't uh, until sort of my third year in when I started getting fascinated with the docs. And um, I got an idea to do a doc for my senior film about Grandpa Munster. And uh, he, his name was Al Lewis. And Al Lewis had a restaurant. Well, he was famous for being on a TV show called The Munsters, which now, I'd like so many years later, I have to explain
0: because I don't think the kids know about the Munsters That's these scary. days. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, it was, sort
1: of like, it was like the kind of like the Adams Family. You know, they were on at the same time, and Grandpa was, you know, Grandpa Munster was the the Grandpa. He was like a Dracula type com- comic Dracula, and the actor who played him was Al Lewis. Oh
0: yeah, I remember him well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Sort of a classic, curmudgeon uh, old-time <laughs> actor. And he opened a restaurant in Manhattan in, on Bleecker Street in the village called Grandpa's. And I just started watching the circus that happened every, every day outside of Grandpa's oh, where wow. tour buses pull up and all the, the tourists would want to meet Grandpa and he would come out and meet them. And I just loved watching the all, all, everything that was going on and knew that it had to be captured as a
0: film. I'll bet. And
1: so that ended up being my, my senior thesis film. It's called Al Lewis in the Flesh. And that sort of set me on a path of wanting to make movies about Americana and pop culture and celebrity and interesting um, sort of oddball characters like uh, like Al Lewis and then after graduating um, I moved to San Francisco and worked uh, first as an intern and then as an apprentice editor on a documentary called the celluloid closet, Uh, which was Directed by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman and Rob had made the times of Harvey Milk Which at that time was and still is my favorite documentary.
0: It's uh, it's amazing.
1: I loved that film, and, and also Cellular Closet, having the opportunity to, to, that was really my first real job in documentary, was mm. uh, working with Rob and Jeffrey, and I got to watch how a documentary was made from the ground up. You know, when I got there, this was in 93, uh, when I got there, the funding was not complete yet, so they were still trying to figure out how to make the movie, how to pay for the movie, and That'd then also right. creating what was the movie going to going to be, because so it was a doc about how uh, LGBT people were presented in in film through right. from the silent era through the nineties when the movie was made. It was based on a book by Vito Russo. Yes. And um,
0: And of course you would you would do Vito the documentary later on.
1: Yes, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. Um, so that was just an incredible experience. I really got to watch two filmmakers, you know, at the top of their game making this film. And then, you know, the day when they got the call that the funding came in from HBO, that was a perfect <laughs> happy day around the office and um and so that film ended up coming out in uh 95 and then i moved to la to uh try to make a living in film and it didn't necessarily have to be documentary i Mm. I knew i wanted to make docs Mm. i got here um i wasn't uh i thought i would be an editor and that that would be a way to make a living and i did I, i started working um as an editor on low budget movies and trailers i edited a bunch of uh exploitation type films you know action movies uh, late night cinemax type I saw movies. that
0: there were some cinemax in there that's right
1: <laughs> yes maybe you're familiar with bikini traffic school or beverly hills bordello those were <laughs> so and that was also a great training ground you know really and especially with doing trailers because I got to write the copy for the trailers and record the voiceover oh, wow. and you know just try to find a way to sell these things which were you know to be honest not the greatest movies in the world right. but you had to find a way to make people excited about something that wasn't necessarily going to pay off when they actually saw the movie. Right. Uh, So that was, that was a great experience, but I always had my eye on docs. And when I moved here, my dream was to do a documentary about a guy named William Castle. Mm -hmm. And William Castle was a horror film director in the fifties and sixties. He's probably best known for uh, his audience participation gimmicks. So he would make a movie like, um, you know, the movie wasn't enough. He needed to make sure the audience came to see the movie. Yeah. So he created these experiences like for one movie called Macabre. Um, he had a he took out a life insurance policy from Lloyd's of London and the audience who came to see the movie was insured against death by fright. Yes. And he had nurses sitting, uh, at the theater and you would have to sign a certificate and you know, you'd be insured and nobody died. But, um, he got incredible publicity for that. And then he did a movie called the Tingler, which where he installed, uh, Little buzzers underneath the seats. Yeah, under and the, the seats, there. Yeah, that's
0: right.
1: Yeah, the audience would be electrocuted. He had a skeleton come out from behind the screen in one movie. So the <laughs> documentary—that was my dream—to do a doc about him, and um, mm-hmm. I had no idea how to do it. So I knew that Sony owned um, all the William Castle movies because they were uh, made for Columbia in the fifties, and okay. Sony owns Columbia. So I just sort of naively thought, <laughs> oh well, I <they'll laughs> want to make this documentary, and that's not what studios do. However, uh, I met the guy when I pitched it over there. I, I just found my way to a guy who was running the the division uh, that was uh, going to be producing content for this new format called DVD.
0: Right. And, uh,
1: DVDs were uh, a new thing, and he, I guess he he liked me, and he just thought, I'll just give this guy an opportunity, and so he hired me to produce a DVD extras for uh, for Sony, and the first one was for William Castle's The Tingler. <laughs> and um, he gave me a, an assignment to do that one. And then um, the extras for the remake of Night of the Living Dead that Tom Savini directed. Yeah. That was from the 90s. And so I got to do those. And that sort of was the beginning of producing what they called added value. And that was extras that would appear on the DVD to in, uh, incentivize people to ditch their VHSs and buy the, the movies they already had. Oh, on really. the, And that... Uh, just one thing led to another, and I started getting calls from other studios, and uh, you know, MGM called, and Fox called, and Warner Brothers called, and all these studios started calling, and I realized that this was suddenly a business. And uh, I had no intention of, um, I always thought maybe I would start a production company, but I didn't know it would happen this way. Uh <laughs> suddenly there were, you know, a dozen jobs, and uh, I, I, brought, I started uh, thinking about starting a company, which we did in about the year 2000. I started a company called Automat Pictures, and um, brought on some really talented uh, producer producing partners, Laura Nix, who's still uh, a, a making films today, a documentary films today. She came in on, in as my partner in the company in the early days, and we brought on freelance producers to 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 work on these projects. And we ended up doing lots of added value, so that would be documentaries, featurettes, uh, audio commentaries, deleted scenes, working with a lot of legendary directors, uh, and we did hundreds of hours worth of content for the studios
0: oh yeah uh, i mean I'm, i'm gonna stop you for a second because i think it's it's worth noting if one if one just goes to your imdb page jeffrey it literally there are 315 producer credits alone listed on the page including 122 director credits and so i mean from the research that i've done jeffrey and and it's it's i can see why you started to be referred to as the the epk samurai i mean for all intents and purposes it would appear that you were the go-to guy for for this kind of work
1: well there were a lot of us there was there was a handful of really
0: talented
1: producers, some of which had companies like mine, some of which were freelance producers. And a lot of them would gravitate toward particular directors. Like, mm. um, I did a lot of work for Paul Verhoeven. So yes. a lot of Paul Verhoeven's films, we did documentaries on that. Right,
0: Robocop, Basic Instinct. I see that, yeah.
1: Starship Troopers, Hollow Man, um, <laughs> you know, all those. And and so, and so, then some of my, my friends in this business, uh, like Charlie De DeLazurica, ended up working a lot with Ridley Scott. Uh, Laurent Buzero worked a lot with Spielberg and Lucas. So uh, we just started working with the same directors, and I, I got to meet a lot of these legendary people. And, and so the studios were looking at their libraries, their, their older films, to try to reignite interest in them and reinvigorate them. So we would do special editions; they would call them special editions. Right, and right. I got to do a lot of. Uh, uh, I, we did Silence of the Lambs and Blue Velvet and Nightmare on Elm Street and yeah. uh, a lot of older films. And then we started shifting into doing what they call day and date, which are brand new movies and we would um, have a producer on set filming all the behind the scenes of a movie as it's being made as opposed to looking backwards at a, a library title like a Scorsese movie. Now we would be on the set of you know, Sex and the City or Hairspray or right. The Legendary Snakes on a Plane, you know, <laughs> filming the movie as it's being made uh, and then that footage would end up being distributed to all of the different uh, uh, news outlets uh, as EPK, Electronic Press Kit. And then we would also make content for the actual physical DVD and then later Blu-ray. So we ended up doing um, both DVD added value as well as EPK, which are sort of two different departments at the studios. Okay. So, so
0: help us understand a little bit, the difference between EPK electronic press kit and then the added value that you were doing.
1: Sure. Well, the home video, Marketing departments would be the people that we would be delivering content to for DVDs for the library titles. And then um, the marketing, the theatrical marketing people, which is a different team, they would be the ones that would contract us to do the EPK, the electronic like right. press. And then once we had all the material, we would deliver featurettes and also just sound bites, just little sound bites. So whenever you see, when you're watching Entertainment Tonight, and you see right. footage of behind the scenes of a movie, a company was hired to make that, to right. produce that material, right. and then we would also produce featurettes for the DVD, and that would be produced for the home video people. So it was it was interesting, and and um, we would be on a movie like Hairspray. There would be so many uh, needs for that particular movie. You know, there would be. Uh, Every day we'd get a call. We need a new feature ad for this outlet. We need a new, we need a new bunch of sound bites for this outlet. Uh, MTV wants to have an exclusive. So we're going to do this. So I I had an incredible team uh, that was sort of keeping up with all of these needs
0: from the studio. What, What was that? What did the size of that team look like? So we can have some ideas. So my listeners can have some idea what that looks like on a feature set.
1: Well, you know, it depended. You know, we would sort of expand and contract as needed. So I would have some, I had some staff producers. You know, I had a producer named Katie Lee, for example. She was uh, our staff EPK producer, and she would be the one to go to set. And then we would hire out freelance camera people, sound people, we would sound, yeah, yeah. We would, we would hire freelance editors. Uh, I think at one point we had staff editors too. But we were a small boutique company. That's what Automat was. So there would be anywhere on staff anywhere between like. Five and fifteen people at any given moment. Yeah. Um, and but then there were much bigger companies than us, I and mean, we were a small company. And there'd be other companies like I don't know Trailer Park or uh, uh, there you know any number of companies that would. They were huge companies, and yeah. they also specialized in marketing. And they did they also did trailers and and posters and all kinds of other marketing materials. We were always sort of a boutique company, and I think that's what some of our vendors liked about us oh, that we would give it the special attention, and it, their project wouldn't get lost in the shuffle.
0: So I've also worked in features, and I've worked with the EPK EPK guys, and I uh, it it's always fascinated me because there is this, it's funny. There's this, and and you can probably more than anybody sort of uh, uh, attest to this. There there is a separateness between the actual crew of the film and then the EPK guys, and. As I got to know the EPK guys, I I loved what they were doing because they kind of weren't really beholden to, in many ways, they weren't necessarily beholden to what's happening on on set as much as they have the responsibility of their client, which was also often dealing with the producers, right? Or the company that had hired them to be on set. Um, Explain what that relationship and dynamic is like between you guys and then the actual crew.
1: Well, essentially, the the movie studio is hiring the EPK crew, right. and the filmmakers on set know that it's sort of a necessary evil. Some of them, <laughs> yeah. you know, some of them were really um, wanted the EPK crew would want our crew there, and some of them would sort of be, uh, you know, it's just sort of another thing that they have to deal with yeah. while they're trying to make a movie, you know. And um, but this footage is necessary to sell the movie, so they understood that. Right. And I don't want your listeners to think that what we were doing in terms of EPK were documentaries. and We were there to to provide marketing materials to the studio. Right. The the difference with the EPK versus the added value for the more older titles, the library titles, with a library title, the movie's already sold. You don't yeah. have to go out and sell the movie. Right. So you can actually, I, I look at the, the added value that we did as more real documentaries. Like um, we would do a documentary when the movie Rent came out uh, we didn't do the EPK for that film, but we did do the, the DVD for that film. That's so we right. made like a two-and-a-half-hour documentary about wow. the original Broadway show, right. Jonathan Larson, and the drama, uh, the backstage drama with with Jonathan passing away right as the show was, was about to launch, and how it became um, such a, a juggernaut. We wouldn't have been able to do that documentary if it hadn't been for the fact that the movie was being made, because yeah. we were able to legally use all the music and all this material, you know, that because the, it wasn't, we didn't have to um, license songs from the show as we would if we making a documentary about Rent independently, let's say. Right. We could just use all the songs from the movie to illustrate the documentary. Now, the, the sad thing is that all, all this material that we created over, and, and there was a golden age of DVD extras, and that mm. golden age is definitively over, I have to say, mm. so, you know, something like Rent only exists on the DVD. At this point, the studios don't have much incentive to keep that material alive um, on streaming. So um, unlike, well, Criterion, they do that. They have um, on on Filmstruck all the Criterion libraries there and their Blu-ray and DVD extras are actually on this platform, which is so great. All, all I mean I
0: don't understand why it wouldn't be. I mean, I know for myself as a doc filmmaker it is again it's an added it's an added incentive for someone t- to perhaps purchase your film online if you're offering a number of behind the scenes type uh feature you know featurettes. It's it's yeah, interesting. That's,
1: that's the thinking and the studios dil- they still do do that. So on iTunes you can buy a pack you can buy a bundle and you can buy Yeah. The, with the iTunes extras. It's just not it's just not the same and the studios not, yeah. you know yeah. Once they once the DVD market kind of plateaued mm. and then DVD sales fell sharply and Blu-ray once that was introduced it didn't really take off the way they had intended yeah. and then all the streaming came in you know and physical media was sort of on the wane yeah. the studios yeah. didn't have the incentive to hire companies like Automat to produce this kind of content so right. our, our business which was essentially uh, created to service this industry um, things changed very quickly for us so. That was when I decided that I'm going to go full full on in full in on producing my documentary work um, because that was where really my passion was and the business model of producing this content for the studios really wasn't viable anymore. Right, so, right. Automat Pictures still exists and I still use the the brand. Yeah. Um, it looks very different than it did in the you know the the mid 2000s.
0: So you you're a documentary filmmaker now. That's what you do. That's what Automat does. That's what you produce. But prior to that, you've been a documentary filmmaker by doing, you know, doing these DVD extras, by doing the EPK. You've been doing it for years. Why is it, Jeffrey? Why do you think that a documentary filmmaker in many ways is perfectly suited for this kind of work? Well, that was always my intention. You know, I fell into this um, very happily
1: doing this kind of work because I. I saw myself as a documentary filmmaker, and this was an incredible opportunity to produce work that I really cared about. And some of these films had really fascinating, compelling backstories. Even the bad movies had compelling backstories. Like we did a documentary about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Yeah. You know, right. which is a movie that a lot of people even like, even horror fans. And even the director understands that it's, you know, it's sort of within the horror fan community. People aren't too crazy about that movie. So we got to make a movie with New Line's blessing. Uh, get to make a featurette that acknowledged that the movie was a failure. No way. You know? and, <laughs> and and it was like it was sort of an uh, almost like um, the doc about the making of Apocalypse Now, where everything goes wrong. <laughs>
0: right, the right.
1: going crazy because he was an independent filmmaker, and suddenly he's making a movie for a major studio, and yeah. everything's going wrong. And it's one of my so, favorite
0: docs, actually. Yeah, I love it.
1: Yeah. Well, then you, you might enjoy the Saw is family. Oh, totally. Movies. And so we, you know it was great but you know the the frustration was that the studios although they supported what we were doing essentially it was just a uh, a line on the back of the dvd box like this dvd has this 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 and this oh yeah and they weren't um meant to be treated as uh, as special as the movie itself which i totally understood yeah but for as a filmmaker it was frustrating because not a lot of people saw this work only the people who bought the dvds and there were there was a very enthusiastic fan base for the dvd extras and now I hear there was an article in The Times, New York Times just a few weeks ago about DVD extras and how they're really a thing of the past and how so many young filmmakers, that was their film school. Oh, they got
0: absolutely. To- absolutely.
1: And that makes me feel really, really great that, yeah. you know, able to sort of add to the conversation and add to film scholarship by making these docs and these um, audio commentaries. Well, you know, great.
0: maybe there's a doc to be made. About the DVD extras, <laughs> an examination of, of like what you're saying of how they did shape filmmakers, because I totally get it often. I, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I often gravitated to, to some of the extras more so than, than the film at times, because I wanted to see how things were done from the inside sort of perspective. I wanted to see how films got made. And so sometimes I was more attracted to that
1: yeah and uh, that makes me feel really good that this material is still out there you know when criterion did uh, their new blu-ray of silence of the lambs they licensed this um uh, documentary that we did uh called inside the labyrinth that was one of the first ones that we did and now oh. that documentary is on the criterion blu-ray which was a really fantastic thing
0: oh cool uh,
1: and shout factory now is reissuing a lot of films that we worked on years ago and they're porting over some of the content that we did for the studios. That's so great. That's, that's great. But you know, most of this content, you, you'll have to find it in the future. You'll if, when DVDs are harder and harder to find. Oh yeah. You know, people are uploading this some of the stuff to YouTube, which yeah. I think is great because it's not necessarily illegal to do that. Right. You know, but encouraging <laughs> that kind of behavior. But on the other hand, it gives these these um, featurettes a life that, um, yeah. that they may not. But to answer your question about you know what it was like to be a filmmaker. Or consider myself a filmmaker doing this. It wasn't until I did my first feature, where I was treated as a filmmaker by, by like the press or the the, the documentary community. Right. You know, I, I did hundreds of hours of content, but it wasn't until I did *Spine Tingle*, the first film, where I was suddenly playing the film in a premiered the film at AFI Fest back in 2007. You know, walking a red carpet, being interviewed by the press, um, the film was being reviewed, and I was suddenly considered a filmmaker. So I. Did, I I feel like that was where sort of things shifted and changed for me as a director. And I felt mm. very confident that I could continue making films. Um, it was great to have Automat and that content sort of as my, my bread and butter. That was sort of uh, the day job in a way. Totally. That, that was sort of the my, my craft. And the documentaries were the art, let's say. Mm. And, um, you know, now things have shifted and I've really put the emphasis all on the docs. And the day job of doing the featurettes isn't really so much there anymore. Yeah. So it has become more challenging because, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers will identify with this, you know, you kind of have to have a day job because the documentaries aren't necessarily going to pay your bills. Right, right,
0: right. Give us a snapshot, then give us a glimpse of what sort of, because what a lot of what you're describing here is is really at the heart of what we talk about in some form or another, um, which is this idea of a dock life. And you have very much described for us already, you know, how you had been and how you are living your dock life. Though now your dock life, from what I am understanding and from what I'm hearing for you, has very much shifted in a way that you're doing the dock work all the time now. Do I have that right? Or are you still taking on some commercial type gigs?
1: I do take on um, sort of side gigs every yeah. once in a while. I'll produce for other people. Yeah. I will consult for other people. I was a consultant on the Gilda Radner doc that okay. premiered at Tribeca. Um, I work with Ron Nicewater, who's uh, a screenwriter, author of Philadelphia, and lots of other movies. He did his first doc, and I, I co-produced that and co-edited that with him. So I will definitely take on um, side jobs. I do editing once in a while, but yeah. you know the emphasis really is on the on the documentaries, and I've been lucky enough to be able to get them all – financed, and um, when you do that, you can carve out a salary for yourself, and and all documentary filmmakers, you have to do that, even if it's like a very low amount, you have to um, respect yourself and honor yourself with paying yourself a salary, even if it's small, you know, you we sometimes we, we tend to martyr ourselves for our films because yeah. we just want to get it done. But um, when you're, if you can get the financing, always uh, carve out something for, for, for yourself so that you can live. You know. Um, but yeah, the last, I've now made um, since *Spine Tingler*, I've made five since then. So the Alan Carr film is the sixth one yeah. that's all been financed. They've all been um, released commercially and some of them theatrically, and um, and um, they're in the world now, which is a, a great feeling.
0: And now to name some of, of the doc work that you've done, and we've already named a couple of them, but I Am Divine, Tab Hunter Confidential, Vito, and then of course your, your most recent, the fabulous Ellen Carr. If someone looks at your material, you can definitely, I feel like, point back to your very first documentary film that you did as a student project, and which was Al Lewis in the Flesh, and you can see exactly where you've come to and how you've arrived where you have. You're you're doing similar material, uh, in many ways, to what you were doing back at SUNY Purchase.
1: I, I believe that um, as a filmmaker, you you know the seeds for the things that you want to do are planted you know, decades before you actually go about doing them, you know, like a lot of the things I make movies about are things I was fascinated with or obsessed by when I was a teenager or when I was in college, you know, like (laughs) watching the John Waters films and discovering him in high school. Um, you know, led, and I couldn't have imagined back when I was 17 and discovering John Waters that years later I would make a film about his leading lady. unbelievable,
0: defined. yeah. And,
1: and that, you know, John Waters and I would be friends and he sent me a, a present for my wedding. You know, like I couldn't, I still can't kind of wrap my <laughs> head around it. So it's like you just have to follow your obsessions. They'll lead you to really wonderful places. You know, being um, working on the cellular closet in the early 90s, that was an experience that I'm so grateful for because reading. Vito Russo's book, *The Celluloid Closet*. Yeah. I, I came out in the '90s. I read Vito Russo's book. It was really formative for me. And then I heard Rob and Jeffrey were making the film mm. about the book. And I just called them up and said, I need to work on this and just move to San Francisco specifically to work on their film. And not and knew that I wasn't even going to get paid for it. I was I was um, temping, you know. Three, three, three days a week and, and interning for them. And then when the financing came in, they ended up hiring me and I worked a night shift for right. you know a very low wage. So right. but that led to getting to know the work of Vito Russo intimately because Rob and Jeffrey were friends with Vito Russo and Vito Russo passed away right before they were making the film. And wow. they promised Vito on his deathbed that they would make sure that this film got made. Yeah. And um, Vito, you know I, I got to look at all of Vito's research, I heard audio of him, video of him, uh, and really uh, immersed myself in his work and his life. And then years later, ended up making a film about Vito Russo for yeah. HBO. And so those seeds are planted early. So I, I would say to all your listeners, listen to what your obsessions are. And if something just keeps coming back in your life over and over for some reason, like that was maybe it was meant to be. And these are not movies that the world was asking for necessarily, but I, I felt that there was a need for them. And that these people uh, needed to be celebrated. They're all sort of oddballs and underdogs. And Mm. that's kind of uh, characters that I'm attracted to.
0: Those are some pretty inspiring words there, Jeffrey. And I feel like I can appreciate it because, and I don't know if this happens with other doc filmmakers or not, but it it certainly does happen and is happening for myself, which is that I think sometimes that Mm. I overthink the films that I want to and should be doing. And, Mm. I really, you know, we had on a guest by the name of Maury Warshawski, and, and and Maury was kind of a bit of a film funding guru, but 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 a big part of, of his thing is finding he has some principles and core values that he talks about that every filmmaker, every doc filmmaker should define for themselves before ever even necessarily making a film, and he believes that this will lead you, and this will not only lead you to the type of work that you will want to do, um, but it will also it will also draw the type of people that you want to be working with. And I think myself, I have struggled with that. Um, uh, many times. I think I intellectualize things like what would be a great story idea or what would be a great idea for a doc. And, and I might find myself jumping into it. And then, you know, a year or two later, um, I, the interest might wane because it wasn't necessarily coming from the heart to begin with. And, um, it uh, it's definitely something I struggle with. So I I feel like I have certainly uh, I envy and have some ad- admiration that um, that you have been been doing the f- type of films that you've wanted to, to do ever since your days at, at SUNY Purchase. I uh, I certainly admire that.
1: Well, you have to be really tenacious. I mean, like what you're doing in the films that you are working on that you talk about all the time. I mean, you can't. You you have it in your soul that you that this story needs to be told, and you have to follow that story wherever it goes. And it might take five or seven or eight years of your life or more. Mm. You have to be ready for that, you know. Like all these films, even though it seems like there's another film that I've done every other year or so, they all I'm working on all of them at the same time, mm. you know. So, and they all take five years, seven years, eight years. Sometimes, like *Spine Tangler*, took like ten years to get you know to the finish line. On. Oh wow! Yeah. And, and so you just have to. You know, and not all your ideas are going to make great films. You know, okay. you, you have to sort of find a subject, even if the subject interests you, it has to translate visually. It has to have a really strong and compelling story. Uh, I don't really think of these films really any differently than a scripted narrative film. And that's just the way I, I approach them. You know, I, I just try to find strong, bigger than life situations, bigger than life characters that you care about. You know, triumphs and tragedies and all the things that make a great movie, whether it's scripted or doc. And partially, I think that's why audiences are so um, open to watching docs now, is because mm-hmm. there's been so many great documentaries that use the techniques of of narrative film for in sure. a way. For sure,
0: for sure, I, w- I would agree with that.
1: You know, a great story is a great story, whether it's scripted or doc. But I just happen to love docs,
0: Jeffrey. How much are you thinking about when you're making a doc or say you're in um, development on, on a doc? How much are you thinking and considering the type of audience that you'll have? Or are you really, truly just simply um, going with, with your interests and going with your obsessions?
1: I think you have to think about who you aud- your audience is. I mean, you can make a movie for the love of it, and not think about the audience, and maybe there won't be an audience, but if you want to make that movie and you have something to say, then by all means go ahead and say it, but at the same time, this is a business, and you know if you can identify an audience who's being underserved, uh, I think that it really behooves you as a filmmaker, and you also have to be a business person uh, to, to serve that audience. You know, I make a lot of films that serve the LGBT community right. and you know, the films that I'm making, I felt that, you know, for example, Vito Russo, I felt very passionately that this is a person that needed to be recognized for his bravery and his activism. And he really did change the world. He's one of the founding fathers of the gay movement and most people didn't know who he was. Right. So I wanted to make this, you know, to celebrate somebody who was being neglected, and who, and as time goes on, memory fades, and uh, we are always looking for people in the past to help inspire us today. Mm. and Vita was one of those people, and there's an audience who is craving those kinds of stories. I mean, you're seeing that in all different communities. I mean, African American filmmakers are looking for stories in in their community to share with their own community, and then for the larger community, they need to know, you know, the struggles that people went through. And so I I, I think that's I think it's really important to to uh, find. Um, an underserved audience and uh, find stories that they'll respond to. My guest is one of the most talented driving forces in the entertainment business today. Glamour is entertainment. That's what entertainment is about.
0: His Hollywood parties are almost as famous as his movies. He was a producer, but he
1: was also a star. People wrote articles about him. People wanted to get to know him. As a child, I would watch Merv Griffin, so I remember seeing Alan Carr on the show.
0: Hi, Hi Uncle Merv.
1: And Alan was not shy about his achievements. I did the movie Grease. I don't know if you people know that.
0: Greece burst out of the gate. The summer had opened. Kids ate it up with a spoon. The songs became part of the national consciousness. Alan turned this movie into a worldwide party.
1: He told them what to wear and how to dress.
0: He was like the star maker.
1: You had this flamboyant gay guy who managed to make things that people went crazy about.
0: So tell us how you came to the fabulous Alan Carr.
1: Well, the fabulous Alan Carr is the latest film. And Alan Carr, for people who don't know, is probably best known as the producer of Grease with John (laughs) Travolta. Yeah. John. You know, he was, and even though the name isn't so familiar now, back at his height in the 70s and into the 80s, I don't know that he was a household name, but he was a very familiar figure in talk shows. You know, he'd be on the Merv Griffin show all the time. He was a producer, and most producers are behind the scenes, but he was. Somebody who was almost as famous as the people in the movies that he made because he cultivated his personality and he wanted to put himself front and center to help sell his movies and to promote himself. So he was very flamboyant, bigger than life. He wore caftans. He had a disco in his basement. (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) All the stars would come and party in his disco. And, you know, when he first got to Hollywood, he needed to make sure people knew his name because he was a talent manager and he wanted to promote himself as well as his clients. But he always loved movie musicals. He grew up with movie musicals in the fifties and in the late seventies, mid late seventies, you know, it was a pretty uh, depressing time in America and the movies reflected that. And Alan Carr wanted to bring back sort of the magic and glamor of the movie musical. Uh, and the movie musicals were, hadn't really been, they weren't really being made and the ones that were being made were kind of terrible and nobody went to see them. So he had the, the vision for Greece. He, he brought that vision to life. It was a huge success. Uh, so, that, and that he was always chasing that success uh, to, to try to replicate it, which he never really can. So, he had a crazy roller coaster type career with huge successes and huge flops. And I thought he was um, a fascinating figure. And also, uh, to tell his story, it was also sort of a social history, a, a gay social history of Hollywood, uh, where you're talking about a guy who came of age in the closeted 1950s. Right where a lot of gay men in particular would just worship uh, at the altar of the movie musical and then through the seventies and sort of the sexual liberation and coming out and, and then, um, and, and, Alan's place in all of that. And and then through the 1980s, when the AIDS epidemic came along and, and changed everything for everybody, including Alan. So I thought it was an interesting way to, um, to tell the, the social history through the history of one man. And that was sort of um, the idea for, a lot of the films with Vito it was the same thing, it right? Was telling the story of the um, gay liberation movement through the, the from Stonewall through the AIDS years, uh, through the, the eyes of one man.
0: As we're recording this, uh, the fabulous Alan Carr has just been released on iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, and Google Play. So, um, I will certainly put links to those up in our show notes. Um, and I'll also include links to um, a number of the other tra- uh, of trailers to the other films that we mentioned. Uh, after watching Alan Carr, I really want to go back. And certainly after this <laughs> conversation, I really want to go back and watch some of the early stuff. In particular, I'd love to see Spine Tingler, the William Castle story. And uh, I definitely want to see that. And I wonder, Jeffrey, is there any way um, one can view Al Lewis in the flesh?
1: It's on Vimeo and YouTube. So oh, it is. Stupid. Okay, great. I put it up there and I even put up uh, some extra some bonus features deleted scenes uh, uh, on my uh, YouTube page I, I believe there's a playlist for Alan Carr okay, sorry, great. a playlist for Al Lewis in the Flesh and there's even an audio commentary and all that stuff uh, uh, added value for a short film made in uh, in, the, in the late 80s <laughs> early 90s yeah
0: yeah well send me send me a link to that if, if you wouldn't mind Jeffrey offline and um, that way I can get it up in, in the show notes what did you shoot Al Lewis on what format
1: that was 16 millimeters. Wow. And so, you know, that was, I, I think our years at SUNY Purchase were the last years of film. Okay. And, that
0: was my question. Yeah. I, when I got to Fredonia at 89, uh, the film department, the official film department had just closed and they had gone fully to video.
1: Oh, interesting. And so what you were there, what were the years you were there? I was
0: there. Uh, I was in Fredonia from 89 to 93.
1: Okay. That's pretty much, that's, that's my era too. So Super close. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we were we were um, shooting on film, very expensive film, sixteen millimeter. We were edited on flatbeds, uh, oh, and yeah. you know everything would have to be sent out to be developed, and then you would edit on the flatbed with work print, and then you would cut your negative, and then you would. I mean, it was a very laborious, time-consuming. Um, I don't want to go back to those days. I mean, I think people <laughs> are nostalgic about film, and film looks wonderful, uh, and I, I do miss the aesthetic. Yeah. Of, uh, 16 millimeter and you can still shoot on 16 millimeter, yes. but um, I don't miss those days uh, of, uh, of, of bins with little pieces of film hanging <laughs> in the bin. You lose that shot and you're digging through the, basically a trash bag of film. That's uh, right. Like, it's not that you missed. So yes, uh, for the youngsters, those were not necessarily the good
0: old days. <laughs> those are <laughs> not the good old days, right. As we wrap up here, Jeffrey, I do have two final questions I want. I'd love to run by you. Uh, firstly, you know, when you first, uh, when we were first, when you first reached out and contacted me and emailed me and and let me know that you listened to the show, um, I was very happy to hear that. And um, I have to ask, what brought you to the Documentary Life pad- podcast? I'm so curious.
1: I was sort of wishing that a show like yours existed because, and there were no shows that um, talked directly to documentary filmmakers. I mean, I wish this show existed 20 years ago when yeah. I was. For- you know, I think like what you're doing is so valuable that you're you're talking about your own experiences as a filmmaker and you're bringing on a wide variety of um, people within our community. And we really have to help each other out and share our knowledge because we're really all in it together. And it's, you know, even though... A lot of people say, "Oh, what a great, It's a golden age for docs, and it, it, it is. It's easier than ever to make a doc, but yeah. it's harder than ever to, to make make a living doing That's a documentary. Right. And it's harder to get. Yes, you can get your film on all the platforms, but how are you going to get people to watch it? You know, so it's it's um there's sort of an embarrassment of riches of documentaries that are out there, and it's uh it's challenging. So hearing other people's uh, experiences in this world and trying to live a documentary life, and I I love your concept of the documentary life because if you're going to do this. Even if you're working a day job, this is something that you have to, um, you can't give up on. You have to hold on to this. Anybody can make a documentary, really. You have to, if you have the passion for it, if you have a subject subject matter that you feel that if you don't make this movie, the, it will be totally forgotten. If you have access to a subject who trusts you, trust is the number one thing. You know, if you have, if there's a person in your life that you feel so their story needs to be told and they trust you, that is the... That's the first step in making a great film is, is trust, access and trust. Um, so I get calls from people all the time who say, well, oh, I have this great idea for a doc. I want, I want you to make it. I'm like, why don't you make it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, well, I've never made a doc before. I'm like, well, so what? You know, my, my favorite story is the, the film, um, five broken cameras was, um, yeah. a doc made a few years ago by, I believe he was a Palestinian
0: olive farmer. Yeah. And- yeah. I, I, I remember it and I can't remember this name. He made that film and it was nominated for an Academy Award. It's an amazing film. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so I just love that story
1: because, you know, uh, of course you want to surround yourself hopefully with people who can help you bring your vision to life. But really all it takes is that spark of passion and um, a story that you're just dying to tell. And some people just make one brilliant film and they never make another movie again, you know, and that's, and that's great. And that's, that's what they're here to do. And some people, make, make movies as a, as a life and as a a career, you know, it's, it's just, um, I don't know. I I feel like what you're doing is really important and you're just encouraging people to, to say yes to documentary and to follow whatever dreams they have in bringing a story to life.
0: And there is no way I'm going to follow that up with another question. That is just, that's priceless. You just said it right there. That was beautiful, man. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Jeffrey Schwartz, documentary filmmaker. His latest film is The Fabulous Alan Carr. Again, I'm going to put trailers and a number of other items up in the show notes, and uh, I would strongly encourage you to visit those on the DocumentaryLife.com website. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being in the program. Please come on again anytime. That would be awesome.
1: It was my pleasure and
0: really keep up
1: the good work and congratulations on
0: 75 episodes, 76? You're right, 76, 76 episodes right. At, at the time of this recording.
1: And I mean, what I said about what you're doing, I think it's really, really, really important. And Even though you might not know it, there are so many people out there who are getting inspiration from this. And it's it's probably changing some people's lives without you even knowing it.
0: Congratulations. Thanks, man. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.